Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. On the last day of John Wilkes Booth's life, he stood in the front yard of the Garrett farm with David Harold. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon and the pair had worn out their welcome. An incident with Booth's guns earlier in the day had convinced John Garrett that his family's house guests needed to leave. John's father owned the farm, but John had recently returned from the war and shouldered much of the workload around the place. He pushed these two men who said they were cousins to get off the farm as soon as possible. Then John's anxiety jumped a notch higher. Two Confederate soldiers galloped through the outer gate of the family farm. They charged into the yard and spun their horses in front of the men who called themselves James and David Boyd. The soldiers shouted to the two men, Marylanders, you had better watch out. There are 40 Yankee cavalry coming up the hill. The two soldiers had seen the cavalry with their own eyes. The troopers were crossing the Rappahannock River as they spoke. They'd be in the town of Port Royal in a matter of minutes. At that point, they would be just two miles from the Garrett farm. The soldiers didn't even stop their horses. They delivered the news while they pulled the horses around and raced back through the gate. Booth and Harold wasted no time. They hurried toward the woods behind the Garrett farmhouse. John Garrett stood in the front yard of his family's farm and stared at the two men. He didn't trust them, and now he knew something was very wrong. Soon enough, he'd learn their real identities. And in eight hours, his family's farm would be the site of the last stand of John Wilkes Booth. Welcome to Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. This is the season finale of a seven-part series about one of the largest manhunts in American history the search for John Wilkes Booth after he assassinated President Abraham Lincoln. This is Chapter 7, Useless. (laughs) 
shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms, coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. While Booth ate lunch at the Garrett home two miles southwest of Port Royal, the 16th New York Cavalry ate lunch in Port Conway, directly across the Rappahannock River from Port Royal. The 26 troopers and two detectives that formed the posse had taken a steamship down to northern Virginia the previous night. They'd searched a village about 20 miles north of where Booth slept and found no sign of the fugitives. Today, April 25th, they moved downriver to Port Conway. They stopped just outside town to rest their horses and eat lunch, and that's when they got lucky. While some of the men rested at the estate of the wealthy planter who'd fed them lunch, a detachment went to scout the town of Port Conway. The troopers interviewed the inhabitants of the tiny town, and eventually they made it to the river crossing of William Rollins. Rollins was a fisherman who also operated a ferry from Port Conway to Port Royal. When the cavalry described Booth and Harold and explained the situation, Rollins verified that he'd met the fugitives almost exactly 24 hours earlier. Then the troopers showed Rollins three photos. The first was conspirator John Surratt. Rollins hadn't seen him. The second and third pictures were Booth and Harold. Rollins recognized both men. They'd wanted to cross the river, but Rollins didn't want to miss his chance to go fishing, so he told them they'd have to wait. While they'd waited, three Confederate soldiers had ridden up to the crossing. The soldiers talked to the fugitives, and then the fugitives hopped onto the soldiers' horses and rode to a different river crossing. This was incredible news to the Manhunters, and it was about to get better. Rollins' wife knew one of the Confederate soldiers. He was Willie Jett, and he was courting a girl who lived across the river and about 12 miles down the road in the town of Bowling Green. The troopers must have been ecstatic. They'd only been on the job for a day, and now they had the first hard information about Booth of the entire manhunt. One of the cavalrymen galloped back to the estate to collect the rest of the unit. Meanwhile, the men in Port Conway started to cross the river. Rollins' crude ferry could only handle a couple men and horses at a time, so it would be an agonizingly slow process. 
but there must have been excitement as well. Booth might be just 12 miles away in Bowling Green. Once they'd completed this damned ferry crossing, they could be there by late afternoon. Little did they know, Booth was much closer than that. After lunch at the Garrett farm, Booth turned his attention to his escape route. As nice as it was at the farm, he couldn't linger. He asked John Garrett if he could take a closer look at a map of the southern states that hung on a wall in the house. John took it down, and Booth examined the lines. He told John that he planned to ride toward Joe Johnston's army. It was the last major Confederate army in the field. After that, he would try to make it to Mexico. John Garrett left the room to let Booth study the map. Now that Booth was alone, he ripped a chunk out of the map that contained Virginia and stuffed it into his pocket. Booth went out to the front porch where John sat on the steps. Booth eased himself onto a bench behind John. Booth took out his small date book and began to write. And then he saw riders in the distance moving down the road near the outer gate. Booth stopped writing. He told John to go upstairs and get his pistols. John hesitated, and Booth commanded the younger man to get the guns. John hurried upstairs and was about to grab the gun belt when he looked out the window and saw that the riders had passed the house without incident. He left the guns in the room and went back downstairs. He sat down next to Booth until they received another jolt five minutes later. A stranger appeared at the gate to the yard. He was on foot, and he started walking toward the house. Booth shouted to John's younger brother to run back upstairs and get his guns. The 11-year-old raced up the stairs and returned a moment later with Booth's gun belt. Booth strapped on the guns and walked out into the yard to meet the stranger, who was not a stranger. He was David Harold. The riders who had passed a few minutes ago were two of the three soldiers who'd helped the fugitives yesterday. The soldiers had dropped Harold at the gate and they continued toward Port Royal. John Garrett and his little brother watched the two men expectantly. The way Booth had demanded his guns made John think he was about to watch a shootout, but it didn't happen. Their house guests talked to the stranger in the yard and then brought him toward the house. Booth introduced Harold as his cousin, David Boyd. Booth had received nothing but hospitality from the Garretts and now he asked if his cousin could spend the night. Suddenly, John Garrett was not accommodating. He said his father owned the property and that he, John, could not allow the cousin to stay without his father's permission. He added that his father was out running some errands and he didn't know when he'd return. It was meant to discourage Booth and Harold, but Harold just said, okay, he would wait. And he sat down on the porch steps. While Booth and Harold forced John Garrett into a tough situation, Fisherman William Rollins shuttled the 16th New York Cavalry across the Rappahannock. During the three trips it took to get the 28 men and their horses across the river, Detective Luther Baker made a deal with Rollins. He wanted Rollins to be their guide as they rode toward Bowling Green and the hopeful capture of John Wilkes Booth. Rollins didn't mind working with them, but he was concerned about how it would look to his neighbors. They didn't like Yankees around here, so Rollins asked Baker if they could enact a charade. 
Baker would pretend to arrest Rollins and parade him through Port Royal so that everyone thought he was forced to work for the Northern soldiers. Baker agreed to the show. It took two hours to get the whole unit across the river. As the ferry operation progressed, two of the three Confederate soldiers who'd helped Booth and Harold yesterday rode into Port Royal. They were Ruggles and Bainbridge, the former members of the famous cavalry unit, Mosby's Rangers. When they made it to town, they stopped on a hill and stared down at the river. Fisherman William Rollins was almost done moving a troop of Yankee cavalry across the river. Ruggles and Bainbridge thought this could not be a coincidence. They turned their horses and spurred them back to the Garrett farm. They galloped the two miles to the main gate. They turned into the gate and dashed down the lane that led to the house. They rode into the yard and spotted Booth and Harold on the porch with John Garrett. Ruggles and Bainbridge barely slowed their horses as they shouted their news. Marylanders, you'd better watch out. There are 40 Yankee cavalry coming up the hill. Before the words were fully out of their mouths, they turned their horses back up the lane and raced for the main road. They charged out of the gate and galloped toward Bowling Green. Booth and Harold didn't say anything. They just ran for the woods behind the house. Or Harold ran and Booth hobbled but they made it there quickly. And they left John Garrett standing in his family's front yard, wondering what in the world was going on. Booth had told John's younger brother that the Union Cavalry might be looking for them, but this reaction was still a bit extreme. And this man calling himself James Boyd had been acting very jumpy for the last hour or so. He'd demanded his guns the first time he'd seen people who weren't members of the Garrett family. John Garrett was now very worried and very suspicious. But after several tense minutes of waiting, no cavalry arrived. Harold came out of the woods and rejoined John in the front yard. They talked about the report of cavalry in the area, and John thought it must be false. But then John spotted the son of a former slave moving down the road as if he'd come from Port Royal. He knew the young man. He ran out to the road and asked about Yankee cavalry in town. The young man confirmed the report. Yes, there were Union troops in Port Royal. They had just finished crossing the river. John hurried back to Harold with the news, but Harold didn't seem worried. And now that worried John even more. The cousins James and David Boyd had run into the woods at the first mention of cavalry. And now David was unconcerned that troops were just two miles away. John didn't know what in the hell was happening, but he wanted Booth and Harold to leave. Harold said there was no trouble and John shouldn't be alarmed. As they stood there arguing in the front yard, they heard the thunder of hoofbeats on the road. They watched as the troop of Union cavalry led by fisherman William Rollins galloped past the Garrett farm. John and Harold didn't know the cavalry was headed for Bowling Green. When the soldiers were out of sight, Harold tried to make it sound like a false alarm. See? nothing to worry about. But with that said, Harold wanted to know where they could buy horses. John Garrett said the armies had taken nearly every horse from the area, but there was a man who might rent his wagon. Harold asked John to arrange it, and John quickly complied. The faster he could get these men a transport, the faster he could get them to leave. John rushed to the house of the man with the wagon. The man wasn't home, 
but his wife confirmed to John that the Union cavalry was definitely hunting for someone. They'd stopped at the home before John arrived. And now John knew for a fact that he needed to get the two men out of his house. The supper table at the Garrett home that evening was a completely different scene from the night before. The friendly atmosphere was gone. Now it was cold and tense. John Garrett's father, Richard, had returned from his errands, but John spoke for the family. They still didn't know the true identities of the men calling themselves James Boyd and David Boyd, but now they were very guarded. There was no more talk of the assassination. John had reluctantly agreed to let the two men stay for supper while he tried to figure out how to get them out of the house. Booth was enthusiastic about buying or borrowing horses from the family, but John hadn't agreed to it yet. He said he would have an answer for them tomorrow. After supper, Booth and Harold lounged on the front porch. As night fell on April 25th, they decided to go to bed early. They expected to have another long day of travel tomorrow. John joined them on the porch, probably to keep an eye on them. When Booth and Harold got up to go inside, John blocked their way. They assumed they'd sleep in John's bed as Booth had the night before. But now John said no, they could not stay in the house tonight. Booth was irritated, but John Garrett was stern and resolute. As the standoff continued, Harold asked about the tobacco barn. Could they sleep in there? John agreed. That was basically the only option. At about 9 p.m., Booth and Harold retired to the barn. There was no tobacco in it presently. At the moment, it was full of hay and odds and ends and random pieces of furniture. Booth and Harold laid down on the hard wooden floor. Booth had a shawl and a plain wool blanket for warmth. Harold had a bigger, fancier blanket that he'd bought the day before. John and William Garrett closed the barn door behind the fugitives. John was convinced Booth and Harold would try to steal the family's horses in the night, so he told William to lock the men in the barn. Slowly, quietly, William slid the key into the lock on the outside of the barn doors. He turned it very carefully so it wouldn't make a sound. Then he stepped back, and the fugitives were trapped. Booth and Harold hadn't heard a thing. But John was still worried. A little while later, he decided that he and William needed to sleep outside to watch the barn. They grabbed the blankets from their beds, and William grabbed his pistol, and they hurried outside. They turned a corn house near the barn into a guard post. They spread their blankets on the ground and settled in to watch the barn. At about the same time that the Garrett boys started their surveillance, the cavalry surrounded the Star Hotel in Bowling Green. That was where Confederate Private Willie Jett probably slept. He was courting the owner's daughter, and he usually stayed there when he was in town. And as far as the cavalry knew, John Wilkes Booth could be in there too. It was about midnight, and the soldiers moved quietly. The hotel was locked, and it took an embarrassingly long time to get in because they didn't want to kick down the door and risk alerting Booth. When they finally made it inside, they quickly found Willie Jett. They yanked him out of bed and interrogated him. He told them the whole story about meeting Booth and Harold. And he said he would take them to the house where Booth was now staying. 
It was the Garrett Farm, a couple miles outside Port Royal. The cavalry had ridden right past it to get here to Bowling Green. That had been roughly seven hours ago. Now the detectives were frantic. They threw Willie Jed on his horse and rushed toward the Garrett Farm. It was 12.30 a.m., Wednesday, April 26, 1865, 11 days and two hours after the assassination. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The column rode hard for two hours before it reached the area of the Garrett farm. Willie Jett told them to slow down. It was hard to find the outer gate on the main road in the dark. All they could see was a fence covered in brush. They couldn't find an opening. Jett and detectives Luther Byron Baker and Everton Conger searched several hundred yards of fence line before they found it. Baker passed through the gate and into the dark of the lane that led to the house. Conger hurried back to the column and retrieved the rest of the men. They passed through the outer gate and then found a second gate farther down the lane. A trooper hopped down and unlatched it. Now the path was wide open to the farmhouse and the tobacco barn. The commanders ordered a charge and the troopers galloped toward the house. It wasn't the pounding hoofbeats that woke up Booth and Harold. It was the dogs. The Garrett family dogs that slept under the front porch at night heard the cavalry long before human ears. John and William Garrett were awake in their guard post in the corn house near the tobacco barn, and they heard the horses next. Finally, Booth and Harold heard the dogs, and then they heard the unique sounds of clanking metal and heavy horses that could only mean one thing, cavalry. Booth and Harold grabbed their guns and ran to the barn door. They tried to throw it open, but it was locked. Booth tried to pry the lock off the door, but it wouldn't budge. They rushed to the back of the barn and tried to kick down a board so they could crawl outside. But Harold wasn't strong enough, and Booth had no leverage because of his broken leg. They were still trapped. Outside, the cavalry galloped into the yard and surrounded the farmhouse. They assumed Booth would be inside. Detectives Baker and Conger and Lieutenant Doherty leapt out of their saddles and ran up to the house. They pounded on the door. Richard Garrett, the homeowner, stumbled downstairs in a fog of broken sleep. The three commanders shouted questions at him. They wanted to know the location of the man who had arrived the day before. Richard was scared, and he gave them vague and confusing answers. Detective Conger was out of patience. He threatened to hang Richard if Richard wouldn't give them an honest answer. Richard still wouldn't admit that the wanted man was just a few yards away in the barn. Then John Garrett came out of the cornhouse. He walked up to the soldiers and told them not to hurt his father. Richard was an old man. He didn't need to suffer. 
John would tell them what they wanted to know. John Garrett directed the soldiers to the tobacco barn, and they surrounded the building. Then they gave John a terrifying instruction. They wanted him to go in and get the guns from Booth and Harold. The cavalry thought Booth and Harold might be more willing to surrender their weapons to a person they knew rather than give them to the soldiers. John Garrett resisted, and Detective Baker basically shoved him into the barn. John couldn't see the fugitives. He stood there, alone, and called out to the darkness. He said the cavalry was there and the two men should give themselves up. Booth stepped forward and cursed John for a traitor. He shouted at John that if he didn't leave now, he'd shoot him. John Garrett turned and ran. He told the detectives that Booth was about to kill him. Now Detective Baker shouted at the men in the barn to give up their guns and to come out. And Detective Conger went around the back to find a good spot to light it on fire. Booth stalled. He said they wanted time to consider it. And for some reason, Baker agreed. So they sat and waited for 10 to 15 minutes. In the barn during that time, Booth and Harold argued. Harold was sick of life on the run. He wanted to surrender. And he convinced himself that they might even go easy on him. After all, he hadn't hurt anyone. He'd only ridden with Booth these last few days. Booth said absolutely not. He wasn't going to surrender, and neither was Harold. Harold begged Booth to let him leave, but Booth cursed him for a coward. Then Booth said, fine, go, I don't want you here. After a few more exchanges with the cavalry, Booth allowed Harold to leave. Then there was yet another back and forth about the guns that Booth and Harold possessed. The bickering between the two sides became absurd, but finally, Harold was ready to leave. He walked to the barn door and thrust one hand outside and then the other to show he was unarmed. Lieutenant Doherty seized Harold and dragged him away from the barn. Now Booth was inside alone, but he had two pistols and a rifle. The cavalry had him trapped and outnumbered and outgunned, but he would surely pick off a couple of them if they rushed inside to get him. Lieutenant Doherty wanted to wait until morning. It was somewhere around 3 a.m. now. The first rays of dawn would peek over the horizon in just a couple hours. Detectives Baker and Conger did not want to wait. Daylight could bring all kinds of other problems. It was best to end this in the dark. At that point, a sergeant named Boston Corbett spoke up. He volunteered to run inside and fight Booth one-on-one. -on -one. Corbett was easily the most eccentric soldier in the unit. He could probably have been classified as insane for reasons that are too gruesome to get into. But he repeatedly asked for the single combat mission, and Doherty repeatedly said no. Baker and Conger still wanted to burn the barn. They told John Garrett to round up some kindling. John collected twigs and bits of hay and piled them near the barn. The exercise gave him his second terrifying moment of the night. Inside the barn, Booth heard the rustling of sticks. He moved to the wall and looked through a gap in the boards. For the second time, he threatened John Garrett to back away or he'd be shot. John ran away, and now Booth knew they were going to set the barn on fire. He called out one last time to try to make a deal. 
The soldiers said they didn't want to fight and they didn't want to kill him. They wanted to take him prisoner. That was of paramount importance to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. He believed Booth was just one player in a vast conspiracy that went all the way to the top of the Confederate government. He needed Booth alive to name everyone else. But Booth refused to come out. He shouted one final line to the cavalry. Well, my brave boys, prepare a stretcher for me. Baker and Conger knew it was done. Conger lit the kindling and the flames quickly spread to the boards. Within minutes, the walls were on fire. Booth was trapped in an inferno. He had four choices. He could surrender, he could burn alive, he could shoot himself with one of his pistols, or he could hobble outside and start a gunfight and go out in a blaze of glory. While he tried to decide, Sergeant Boston Corbett crept up to one of the walls and peered through a gap in the boards. As the fire grew hotter and brighter, he could clearly see Booth in the middle of the barn. Corbett slipped his pistol into the gap in the boards. He studied Booth, but he wasn't going to shoot unless Booth made some kind of threatening movement. Booth stood there with the rifle at waist level, as if he were going to shoot from the hip. Corbett thought Booth was going to make a break for it. He racked the hammer back and pulled the trigger. The bullet struck Booth in the neck. Booth dropped the rifle and crumpled to the floor of the burning barn. Everyone heard the gunshot. Detectives Baker and Conger ran inside. They found Booth lying on his back with a bullet hole in his neck. They argued about who shot Booth until Lieutenant Doherty rushed in and ordered them to get Booth out of the barn. A group of soldiers carried Booth to some nearby trees. They laid him on the grass. He looked dead, but in reality, he was almost totally paralyzed. Doherty angrily interrogated David Harold. He demanded confirmation of the identity of the man on the ground. They all knew who it was, but Doherty needed to hear it from Harold. And Harold wouldn't do it. He denied over and over again that the gravely injured man was the assassin, John Wilkes Booth. As the fire raged behind them, they moved Booth to the front porch of the Garrett house. The entire family was awake, of course. They brought down some bedding to make Booth more comfortable. Doherty tied Harold to a tree in the yard, and then they waited. Booth had looked like he was dead just a few minutes ago, but now he revived somewhat. He occasionally spoke, always in a whisper, and accepted sips of water. He couldn't move, and he was in terrible pain. He repeatedly begged the soldiers to kill him. They couldn't do it. Edwin Stanton needed him alive, if that was possible. The detectives sent for a local doctor. The doctor examined Booth and made the dire pronouncement. There was nothing to be done. Booth would die. It was just a matter of time. While they tried to keep Booth comfortable, the soldiers removed everything from his pockets and began to inspect his possessions. Booth lapsed in and out of consciousness. At least three times, the people crowded around the porch thought he passed away. But each time, he gasped and opened his eyes. Finally, when the end was very near, he whispered to Detective Baker to hold up his hands. Booth looked at his hands, now lifeless and cold, and uttered his final words. Useless. Useless.
useless. John Wilkes Booth died just after dawn on Wednesday, April 26, 1865. For twelve days he held the world in suspense as he evaded capture. He survived through coercion and the kindness of strangers and sheer dumb luck. But now it was done. With his actions, he'd achieved worldwide fame. In his death, he achieved everlasting infamy. He was two weeks shy of his 27th birthday. Around 8.30 a.m. on the 26th, Booth's body was sewn up in a horse blanket and placed in a wagon. It was transported to Belle Plaine, Virginia, where the steamship waited that had carried the 16th New York Cavalry. Booth's body moved up the Potomac River to Washington and then on to the Montauk, which was being used as a prison ship. Booth's identity was verified and autopsies were conducted. Edwin Stanton ordered Booth's body to be buried in the old penitentiary on the Washington Arsenal grounds, which is now Fort Leslie J. McNair. Two years later, Booth's body was exhumed and locked in a warehouse at the prison. Two years after that, in 1869, it was exhumed again at the request of Booth's family. He was taken to the family burial plot at Green Mount Cemetery in Baltimore. He was laid to rest for the final time on Saturday, June 26, 1869. His individual grave was left unmarked. In the weeks after Booth died, eight conspirators were put on trial. All eight were found guilty. Sam Arnold, the author of the letter that led Stanton to believe there was a huge Confederate conspiracy, received life in prison. He was pardoned four years later by President Andrew Johnson. Michael O'Laughlin, who was involved in the aborted kidnapping plot to some extent, received life in prison. He died two years later in 1867 from yellow fever. Ned Spangler received six years in prison. His only participation seems to be that he held the reins of Booth's horse for a couple minutes outside Ford's theater before passing them off to someone else. He was pardoned four years later by President Andrew Johnson. Of the many people who helped Booth during his escape, only Dr. Samuel Mudd was tried and convicted. He received life in prison but was pardoned four years later by President Andrew Johnson. The last four conspirators received the harshest punishment possible. Mary Surratt, David Harold, Lewis Powell, and George Atzerov received the death penalty. They were hanged simultaneously from the same scaffold at 1.26 p.m. on July 7, 1865. Mary Surratt was the first woman executed by the United States government. Mary's son, John Surratt, was the only conspirator to escape the mayhem of April 1865. He fled to Canada, and then to England, and finally to Rome. He joined the military unit that defended the Papal States, commonly referred to as the Pope's military. After a year and a half on the run, he was discovered in Alexandria, Egypt, and brought back to the U.S. to stand trial. But his trial resulted in a deadlocked jury, and he went free. He was the only conspirator tried by a civilian court instead of a military court, and it worked to his benefit. He lived out the rest of his life in the U.S., 
and outlived everyone involved in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. John Surratt passed away in 1916 at the age of 72. Hundreds of manhunters tried to claim shares of the reward money. Colonel Lafayette Baker and several members of his team secured anywhere between $500 and $15,000 apiece. Detectives Luther Byron Baker and Everton Conger were at the top of the list, along with Lieutenant Edward Doherty. Booth's killer, Boston Corbett, received some money as well. Then he went fully insane and disappeared from history. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton had a tumultuous career after the assassination. He clashed with President Johnson frequently. Johnson tried to remove him from the cabinet on numerous occasions, but Stanton always found ways around it. At one point, he actually barricaded himself in his office and refused to leave for a span of several weeks. He voluntarily resigned in 1868. When Ulysses S. Grant became president, he nominated Stanton to the Supreme Court. It was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream for Stanton, but Stanton died just four days later at the age of 55. In one final example of the prophetic wisdom of Abraham Lincoln, he talked to journalist Noah Brooks in 1863 about the idea of assassination. He said he'd resigned himself long ago to the fact that if a man wanted to assassinate him, he would do it. He would find a way. There was no point in walking around in a suit of armor or with a team of bodyguards. There were just too many ways to get to someone, so there was no point in worrying about it. Lincoln ended with this line, which was exactly Booth's experience. Besides, in this case it seems to me, the man who would come after me would be just as objectionable to my enemies, if I have any. Thanks for listening to the story of the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth here on Infamous America. If you enjoyed this series, there are volumes of material out there to read. I want to make a couple quick recommendations. For the fun, fast version of Booth's time on the run, check out Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Abraham Lincoln's killer by James L. Swanson. For a detailed biography of Booth, look for American Brutus, John Wilkes Booth and the Lincoln Conspiracies by Michael W. Kaufman. And for a book that focuses on Stanton's side of the manhunt, start with Lincoln's Autocrat, The Life of Edwin Stanton by William Marvel. Infamous America will return in two weeks with a wild series. We're going to take you deep behind the walls of The Rock, the most infamous prison in American history. Escape from Alcatraz begins in two weeks. Research for this season was provided by Joey McAdams. Editing and sound design by Dave Harrison. I'm your writer and host, Chris Wimmer. 
If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please visit our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, for more details and join us on social media. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram and B Barrel Media on Twitter. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.